I praise God for the privilege and joy of worshiping with each and every one of you. Indeed, uh, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with joy, that the joy of the Lord is our strength, that uh, all joy flows from our Savior, God, as a Father who's loved us, a Son who died for us and continually prays for us 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, throughout all of our lives. Just imagine how much the Father loves you through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And so it's a delight to meet in the name of our Savior and to praise him and to worship together and to sing his praises. Be grateful if you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And like to read verses 23 through 32. And I believe it's on the screen. Uh, 1 receive from the Lord <clears throat> Am I not up high enough? <laughs> I get a lot higher. <laughs> For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the world, that we may not be condemned with the world. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you that you did send your Son, the eternal Son of God, whom you communed and fellowshiped with from all eternity, into this world. And that our Lord Jesus was willing to suffer humiliation from the very moment of his birth throughout all of his life, and to suffer the humiliation of public execution on a cross for our sakes, to pay the penalty for our sin. But we rejoice that you resurrected him from the dead and that he is the life giver, the resurrection of life, and whoever believes in Lord Jesus will not perish but have everlasting life. And so we're thankful that all life comes from our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and we worship the, uh, the Savior and grateful that he has now risen and ascended to your right hand to intercede for us and sends forth the Holy Spirit 
to apply to our lives everything for which Christ died. And so we thank you for opening our eyes to see our sin and misery apart from Christ and then persuading us of the beauty of the Lord Jesus that as the eternal Son of God that, that he has covered our sin, given us his own righteousness that we might enter into your presence. We marvel at the wonders of your grace. And so we thank you and praise you, confident that the Lord Jesus is ruling and reigning and has sent forth his Holy Spirit uh, into our presence now. Open your word that we may see wonderful things out of it and that we might worship you more fully and completely. In the name of Jesus, amen. It is indeed central to our worship that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we learn that early on in our Christian experience. But although I was a Christian, uh, I confess that uh, as a teenager in particular, that uh, I was always a little disappointed on communion Sundays because I knew that the service was going to extend for another 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> and uh, it's not that I was really that upset about it, but, you know, I, I was, I don't know what's the right word, um, disappointed about the, the lengthening of the service. And... Uh, and somehow I, I didn't really capture the full meaning of what it meant to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it really uh, was left to my first year in college in a pre-seminary program at, at a Missouri Synod Lutheran College uh, that the Lord's Supper was emphasized and, and, um, and I saw it, I took it more seriously. Now, part of the reason why I took it more seriously is that uh, the Lutherans hold a, a different view than, you know, I was taught. Um, you know, that the elements, um, although they didn't turn into the body and blood of Christ in appearance, they nonetheless were the body and blood of Christ, and so I, I, I didn't think I should participate. I guess I was warned not to participate. But the way they did it in the Lutheran churches, everybody came up forward. And so uh, since I was the only non-Lutheran in my class, I'd be standing by myself <laughs> halfway back. So you take the whole thing a lot more seriously when, you, <laughs> when you're standing there by yourself. And so it, it, it impressed me that this was a big deal. And I need to give more thought to it. And so although the Lord's Supper is central to our worship, I'm not sure that it is in common for 
especially m many of our young people, and, and maybe for those of, who, those of you who have been Christians for a long time, to not, to just think it's part of the service, and so therefore you, it's fine, but not to properly celebrate the Lord's Supper, because what's core to celebrating the Lord's Supper in a God-honoring manner is this verse from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In the Reformation, the mark of a true church was uh, the, the proper administration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, well, of the sacraments in general, but uh, particularly the Lord's Supper. And, and so, you know, in ministering the Lord's Supper for, I don't know, 52 years, I guess, that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of time to ponder, what does it mean to properly administer it? And uh, although we do what's called fencing the table, in other words, warn people that unless they are, unless they genuinely have faith in Jesus Christ and have repented of their sins and trusted Christ, they ought not to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so we try to make a, a special emphasis on, um, you know, what's called fencing the table. But I think the other part of, of, of learning to genuinely examine yourself is not something that, that I've done well at teaching you as a congregation. And so that's why I felt compelled to preach on this. And I know it's not a communion Sunday, but it's probably just as well because uh, it's a lengthier um, reflection upon or meditation upon what, what the Lord's Supper means. And so, uh, you know, we are commanded that the proper examination, I mean, the proper administration of the Lord's Supper focuses not upon the elements, whether you got the right elements or not, or whether you do the service exactly right. The biggest thing is that there is to be uh, a sermon preached that helps you to examine yourself. Am I genuinely walking with God? Am I genuinely glorifying Him? Am I genuinely uh, seeking to serve Him and to confess our failings in any of those regards and to rejoice again that we have a Savior who loves us with a persevering love that never gives up, that God loves us out of the goodness of his own heart and his own mercy. It's not because of anything that we have done to manipulate him to love us, uh, not by works that we've done, not by how many tears we've shed over our sins or whatever, but, but out of the goodness of his own heart, he chooses to love us. And, you know, the, the more frail I become, and, and, you know, through the, my wife and I together in, in our readings, it, you know, we, defi we find out how great our Savior's love is for us and that he, he, he never uh, looks at us and says, 
if you do this one more time, I'm done. He never does that. And we do it one more time or maybe a hundred more times, but he, he never gives up on us. And his love is persevering. And so he perseveres so that we can persevere. And so one of the marks that you're genuinely a Christian is that you persevere through whatever difficulties, whatever conflicts you may have, even with other Christians and how much they might hurt you and whatever, you hang in there. Well, that's a colloquialism, obviously. That, that's not a theological concept. <laughs> but you persevere in your walk with Christ and uh, knowing that he's persevering. It's not because I'm so perseverant. It's because he's so persevering that, that, that uh, how can I give up on somebody who loves me as much as Jesus has loved me, as the Father has loved me through his Son, the Lord Jesus. And, and so, you know, self-examination is core to the Christian faith. So that makes the Lord's Supper core to our congregation. It's central. It's one of the most, the most important things that we do. And so, you know, the command is to examine yourself, and that's when the Lord's Supper is properly administered, is when you're as, as enabled and assisted and assisted by the service and by the ministry of the church as a whole. So it's not just on that service, but um, through a variety of ways in, in building relationships through care groups, through um, building relationships where, where people come and can rebuke you for whatever it is that they believe is maybe not quite right in your Christian testimony and Christian walk, and you accept it with grace, and uh, as David says, let, let the righteous smite me. It is an excellent oil. <laughs> and I'll still pray for him in his day of trouble. So <laughs> I love that verse. <laughs> I'll still pray for him when he's struggling. And so, um, you know, that's core to our faith is that we accept rebuke. And we also examine and rebuke ourselves. That we also correct ourselves. And so we see that this is not a matter of just beating yourself up over, you know, I haven't done my devotion, my devotional life isn't very good, or I don't pray enough, or I don't, whatever. It's not just a matter of beating yourself up. And not, not that we shouldn't pray more, or we shouldn't have a more disciplined devotional life, but it's, it's, it's far beyond that, that uh, it's a matter of being open to the Holy Spirit examining us. So it's not just us um, flagellating ourselves over whatever it is we haven't done in service to the Lord. It's a matter of praying with sincerity, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And uh, I have thought of singing a song that, that, that uh, uh, these exact words, but I'm not sure I sing on key as well as I used to, so I, I'll spare you that. But at any rate, uh, you know, search me, O God, a beautiful song, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and I have lots of them now. 
and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So that this is, this is, uh, this self-examination is done under the direction of the Spirit of God. This isn't just you. It's asking the Lord, help me to see how I've failed you and how I've fallen short, how I'm not walking with you, how I'm not glorifying you. And so that's why, um, you know, we read the Ten Commandments. We memorize the Ten Commandments because, you know, God's commands are what help us to examine ourselves. And so, um, you know, you shall not have any God before me. Do I have some other God that uh, is before the living God? Uh, or the next command, am I an idolater because I'm trying to, find my, trying to find my joy in some temporal thing or some position that I hold or some achievement or um, some person? No, no person can bear that. No, no person... No other human person, not your wife, husband, children. They can't meet that need within your life for a walk with God. Only God himself can fill it. And so the question is, am I trying to find my satisfaction somewhere else? If I am, then what the something else is is an idol. And so we're commanded, you know, that we're not to make idols, not even in our imagination. I mean, we can all say, well, I don't have any idols, you know, I don't do that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, our hearts are idol factories. You know, we can find, we can place our hope and in, in security in any number of things other than God himself. And to some degree, you only find out whether you're trusting whether God is enough when you don't have anything else, and that's all you got is God. Is he enough? Will he be enough? in that moment when my heart stops beating and will I have known him and walked with him long enough to just, in essence, say what Jesus said, Lord, into your hands I commend my spirit. I know he's there. I know that he's alive because I've seen him work hundreds of times, thousands of times, just on a daily basis. And the more helpless you get, the more you find out that you do need him. You cry out to him even that much more. And so uh, it's an ascent to become frailer and, and to age or to weaken because you, you find out how much you desperately need the Lord. And, and so we ask the Holy Spirit to examine us and we use the Ten Commandments. You know, we go on and we say, uh, do I take the Lord's name in vain? Uh, we're commanded not to take the Lord's name in vain. So do I talk about Christian things in just a casual, offhanded manner? Or do I give uh, the Word of God and the things of God the proper weight that they deserve? Uh, I mean, I don't know, just some of these are the questions that you can ask yourself. You know, uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You know, do I give God the time to, to meditate upon Him and, and truly rest in Him? And, uh, you know, he, he, he's given us six days to labor and do all your work and to satisfy your needs. But one day, and it's a whole day, that we focus on him. Now, that doesn't mean we don't focus on him the other six days. It just means that we spend more time intentionally delighting ourselves in the Lord, <clears throat> seeking to um, evaluate everything for the, this week upcoming 
and, and how it relates to our service to the Lord. And so we genuinely rest in him, setting aside our own works and just trusting in Christ and his, and his work. There, there is a rest that remains for the people of God. <clears throat> um, do we honor our parents and, and authorities <clears throat> properly? Um, you know, do we um, live a pure life in our thoughts, words, and actions? And so you, you can see how you can examine yourself based upon God's Word. And it's not, you know, the, the, the Word of God is a living Word. It's the Holy Spirit's Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. And so it does wound us, but it's intentional. James 4, 7 to 10 tells us. And you may be a Christian many years, but the command is the same. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. That's intentional. You can't just assume, well, the Lord's always with me, with me, and so therefore I don't need to do anything to try to draw near to him. Um, if you love someone, you make time to be with them. And, of course, you know, romantic relationships are a good illustration. And, uh, you know, when I first met Mary Jean, I'd do anything to be with her. She was over at another college. And I'd have to take two trains to get out there and then didn't eat anything all weekend because I didn't have any money really to do it. But she, but she ate in the dining hall, so that, that was taken care of. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, if, if, you, if you delight in somebody, you spend time with them. If, and if you delight in God, then why don't you spend time with him? Amen. He's a joy. He's, he's, he's our life. And so... We examine ourselves. You know, do I spend time with the Lord? Do I find joy in his word? Now, the Bible is not an easy book to understand, but we ask the, the Spirit of God to teach us from his word. And he will show us wonderful things. And uh, I'm thankful for all the years that I've had to study and meditate upon God's word. And it's still a wonder all the treasures that still spring from the word that give me life, that give me hope. Indeed, the good shepherd, he restores my soul. And I need to be restored again and again and again and again. So, you know, I just love this verse from Hebrews, I mean, from Hosea chapter 6. Is that right? Yeah, Hosea 6, 1 to 3. Come and let us return to the Lord. That's intentional. Now, this is written to believers. For he is torn. Is it an easy task examining yourself? No, it's not particularly pleasant. Um, repentance isn't particularly pleasant. It can be very emotional. But he will heal us. If he tears us, if he convicts us with our sin, he not only tears us, but he also heals us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. As you examine yourself, you live in his sight. And this is a daily task. This isn't just uh, for the Lord's Supper. But uh, on the other hand, you know, it's the church's responsibility to enable you to examine yourself. 
And so when somebody says that's a good sermon, what I take that to mean is something in that sermon has convicted them of how they're not walking with God, and now they're rejoicing that Jesus Christ still loves them and cares for them nonetheless. So that's what I take that to mean. Or at least I hope that's what's meant. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, he tears us by his word. And uh, because the word of God is inspired by God, as 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, that uh, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, as God breathes, so that the very exact, the precise words that, that we read are God's own words. These aren't the words of the writer or the author. These are the, God's own words. And is profitable for doctrine, or for telling us the truth, you know, Um, for reproof, a rebuke, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, you know, re rebuke is telling you what you're doing wrong, and correction is tell you how to do it right, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so Hebrews 4 is, you know, tells us again that the, um, the Word of God is living and powerful, sharp than a two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Half the time, most of the time, we don't even know what we're thinking ourselves. But you read the Bible, oh, well, that's why I did that. You find out your, your thoughts and your own intentions from reading God's Word. Um, Let's see, thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we give an account. And so the Spirit of God is the one who examines us, and we are willing to do so. And so what are the consequences of either examining yourself or not examining yourself? First Corinthians 11 tells us, uh, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. But this, uh, this phrase I've pondered for years uh, in verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, in other words, there's a worthy manner in which you take partake of the Lord's Supper, and that is by examining yourselves, repenting of your sins, turning from it, rejoicing in Christ as your Savior, and that's how you're showing forth his uh, death and resurrection, is by rejoicing in, the, in his mercy poured out upon you in spite of your sin, in spite of your failings. But there is an unworthy manner, too, and the consequences are great. It may be sickness. Um, the Psalm 32, 1 to 5 tells us that um, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in his spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Let, let me just comment on that. Uh, when, I kept, when I did not repent and I kept silent, my bones grew old. Well, where does your health come from? Where does the blood come from? Your bones. And so, as a consequence, if you don't confess your sins, it can lead to illness. And that's what Paul's warning. Uh, 
For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And then verse 5, I think is the next slide. But when I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden, I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that is heaven on earth to have a clear conscience. You forgive the iniquity of my sin. Amen. And so that's the main goal in life and uh, is to have a clear conscience before Almighty God. Your conscience is your most important property. And so if we get sick, call the elders to help examine your conscience. If, if, you know, maybe you need some help in doing that. And so James 5 tells us what to do there, where it tells us, if, if is anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Why call for the elders of the church? Are they doctors? Well, they're... Uh, they're, uh, they're curates. They cure the soul, which also cures the body. Let, let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven by confessing them to the Lord's people. So, you know, we very much believe in confession. We don't use a booth or anything, but, uh, you know, I've heard lots of confessions, and, and it's, it's and, and I've Seen, seen a lot of people repent. I've seen some refuse to repent. Say, I, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. I mean, so I've had some people do that too. So, but confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And uh, things can get so bad, according to 1 Corinthians 11:30, that you might even die. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep, meaning that they died. And I, won't, I don't have time to comment much more on that. But um, uh, self-examination results in the peaceable fruit of righteousness, Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. And, uh, okay, let's, uh, okay, verse 7. Well, verse, well, all right. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate, not sons. So you're not truly a child of God if you can't allow God to rebuke you or allow his people to rebuke you. Because I don't know of any skill or any trade or any sport in which you're not told to stop doing something that you're doing and to do it differently. That's part of being coached. But if we are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and you're not really a child of God. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of our spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful nevertheless. Afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so the peaceable fruit of righteousness, repentance, results in life. And repentance also motivates us to rejoice in Christ. Okay, how do you keep Christ-focused or Christ-centered in your life by constantly examining yourself 
and rejoicing that God loves me in spite of all the ways that I've failed him and fallen short and, and been an embarrassment. You know, I love the verse in Hebrews 11 where, where it says that God, God was pleased, that, that those who live by faith, that God was pleased to call them his children. And, uh, you know, those of you who are parents, you know, you've, you've had times when your, your children did really well and everybody comes up and says, oh, that was wonderful about your son. But on the other hand, maybe there's some times when, he, when your son or daughter didn't do, do so well. And you say, yeah, that's my kid, you know. So that's, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure I want to claim him, but I guess I have to. <laughs> so, no, that, there are times when God, I don't know, I, I can't elaborate on that. Anyway, uh, repentance mot- motivates us to rejoice in Christ. Humble yourself and Christ will, will revive you. Isaiah 57, verse 15 for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Self-examination results in a humble and a contrite spirit. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, most Christians are known for, for being proud and arrogant. And, uh, and one of the most important evangelistic parts of our service, believe it or not, is the confession of sin. Because most people think, you know, if they go to church that all these people are better than they are and, or they think they're better than you are anyways. But if we all confess together how we have fallen short of God's glory, then that helps people to realize, oh, well, maybe these folks are like me, you know. <laughs> maybe they're falling short, maybe not as bad as I have, but at least, you know, they're willing to acknowledge it. It's an important part of our worship service. Uh, I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so the promise there is that the Lord will dwell with us. He'll be personal to us. Why does God seem so far away? Because you don't examine yourself and you don't rejoice that he loves you in spite of whatever failures you've had. You don't humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. But if you humble yourself, then he will... He will lift you up, and he cleanses us, 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I, I know I've said this probably too many times, but I, I, um, in the Greek, it's if, if we confess our the sins, and of course, the is the definite article. So in other words, the Spirit of God searches us, and what sins do we have to confess the ones the Holy Spirit has convicted us of. And thank God we don't have to think of every sin, but just the one the Holy Spirit is convicting us of. And, but we do need to confess that one particularly. Confess your particular sins, not just generally, you know, I know I'm a sinner and, and uh, I know you forgive and, you know, I love to sin, you love to forgive, so every, we're all happy, you know, but that's not the way it works, you know. <laughs> confess your particular sins reconcile with particular people. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You'd think, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to, to punish us and to beat us up, right? No, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins because of Christ and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we experience mercy in Proverbs 28. 13, that he who covers his sins will not prosper, but he, whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. And so we see that the Lord revives the humble. Revival is the result of repentance. 
We want to see re revival in our own personal lives, repent. You want to see revival in the church, there's a great need for repentance right within our own congregation. If we want to see change within our nation, there must be massive repentance on the part of its citizens Amen. and turning to God. But, you know, how will that happen unless we provide the example and, the, and teach the way? And so revival is the result of repentance in Psalm 85. We read uh, uh, get Psalm 85. Restore us, O God, of our salvation and cause your anger toward us towards, to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? Revive us again, O Lord, please, that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And verse 8, for I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace. We will have peace in this country. There will never be peace until people start repenting of their own sins and not everybody else's sins. And, uh, you know, I wrote a whole book on this, Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem, what it's about that both Palestinians and Jews have to re recognize their own failures, their own sins, and receive peace from God, and then they can be at peace with one another. Otherwise, there's no hope in the Middle East. There's no hope for our nation. It'll never come together without significant repentance. And how will they know unless we model it for them? Um, I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together, and righteousness and peace have kissed at the cross. And so we can have peace only through Christ. That's the only hope for our nation. Amen. But for us personally, I love the, the quote, be sure that when it comes to time to die, all you have to do is die. You don't have to reconcile with anybody. Now, now it's not that perfect. I mean, there's some things that I'm ashamed of in my life. There's nothing I can do. You know, and, and, and repentance doesn't mean you can ever fix it. You can't fix it. Christ has fixed it. But I can still know his peace. Be sure that when it comes to die, all you have to do is die. Just please pray. Father, thank you so much for your mercies. Pray that you pour out repentance on my heart, my life, my family, the church here, our community, nation, and world, that we might see your grace and experience your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.